0: I V M. Why are Indian banks in so much trouble? Why have so many of their loans gone bad? And how can the government of India plug a $100 billion hole in the banking sector? Welcome to this episode of the Pragati Podcast, where we discuss all this and more. The Pragati Podcast is a weekly talk show on economics, public policy and international relations. We are your hosts, Hamsini Hariharan and Pavan Srinath. My apologies, I am recording this with a sore throat and a blocked nose. But before I was under the weather, I was fortunate enough to have Narayan Ramachandran join us in studio to talk about India's banking crisis. Narayan is the chairman of RBL Bank, a former country head of Morgan Stanley, as well as a co-founder and a fellow at the Takshashila Institution. He writes a regular column in Mint called A Visible Hand. Narayan, welcome to the show. Can you take us back to the origin of this banking crisis? Where did it start? Why do banks have these loans on their balance sheet that have gone so bad?
1: So first, I think, you know, world over banks have uh, occasionally hit trouble. Uh, for those who don't follow the banking system every day, a bank is a leveraged entity, mm-hmm. um, often leveraged ten is to one. Okay. Right. So when things go well, it goes really well, and if things don't go well, then they go rather badly because of that that leverage. Yeah. So think of it as a treadmill. If you're running at the right speed, then you'll be perfectly in sync with the treadmill. But if you're off uh, key with the treadmill, then you fall off. And So the banking sector broadly, because of the leverage, is like that. Some people have actually likened the banking sector as a hedge fund on the economy because of its fundamental leverage. Works very well, again, during good times and not so well when when things are not so good.
0: So essentially, every day, every year, you're borrowing to pay, pay back previous borrowings. Is that a good way to look at leveraging?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's when the you treatment? say it that way, it doesn't sound so good. <laughs> Except that you're actually refreshing, you know, you, you have $1 of equity and $9 of debt, mm-hmm. and you create a balance sheet, and then you lend out some 7 $8. Right. Or equivalent in in, in rupees. So that's exactly what you do in banking. And if you're doing that with fresh uh, ideas and fresh proposals, and that 7 is getting paid back, and then you're reissuing a 7 to a new set of people, or over time... The ten itself is growing to fifteen, and you're doing that to more people. Then that's how a healthy banking system works in general, right. right? The 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 problem is when some of that money that seven doesn't come back, and two when that ten doesn't grow to fifteen for a variety of reasons. So when you have both of those problems, and particularly if both of those problems occur at the same time, mm-hmm. then you have then you have difficulty. So tracing the origins of the Indian uh, current banking crisis. I would say it's twofold one is quite literally a consequence of the global financial crisis of 2008 and its implications for some of the global sectors so wherever you have a global commodity for instance steel and steel is actually now made in multiple countries and traded around the world now in the period leading up to the global financial crisis people sort of assessed that there would be insatiable demand for steel and consequently put a lot of capital and equipment in for the making of steel. Those steel producers, particularly those from China, but certainly also from other countries, Canada, Japan, Korea, etc., are all making steel even now. And the demand for steel is not quite there in a somewhat muted world after the global financial crisis. So, in some sectors such as steel, which are global, or cement, which is national but still suffers from perhaps moderate excess capacity within the national borders of India, there I would say the consequence of just demand turning soft is what has resulted in large scale uh, difficulty for the banking sector. So, one part of the difficulty is, is that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: the other part of the difficulty is uh, man made if i can call it that and and by that i mean it is either a combination of exuberant uh entrepreneurs founders just you know going crazy in terms of putting new plant and equipment in where at any time there was really no demand to speak of or mm-hmm. it certainly demand was much short of what the supply was going to be. Um, or it was what is now widely written about, which is that banks, in particularly public sector banks in India, have a very lax sort of governance structure. And that governance structure has had both political interference and has had outright fraud. So PNB, for instance, is outright fraud. Right. And, but in several of the other instances, uh, with some of the larger public sector banks, it's actually just political direction and political interference that has caused, uh, bank systems to go, those loans to go sour. So I would say three big pockets of reasons why we come upon the banking crisis we do today.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: One is to repeat, one is just a result of demand going soft in a world that was expecting more post the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. Understandable, but but there. The second part is, you know, entrepreneurs, founders becoming very, very aggressive, not having enough equity to back uh, their projects and taking on excessive leverage. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Compounded by a very loose regulatory and not regulatory as much as loose, governance framework for public sector banks that has created both political interference and fraud. Uh, so three sort of buckets of reasons why we have the banking system crisis that we have today.
0: So so we've seen this develop over quite a few years, right? I mean, we've, people have been able to see this coming. Uh, what, what has been done uh, to sort of manage this problem in the last few years? Has anything been done?
1: So, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, I mean, the metaphor of falling off the treadmill is quite literally the case. Once you fall off the treadmill, it's not difficult to put an injured person back on the treadmill and make Mm -hmm. sure they're running at quite the same speed that the treadmill needs to run and to be in sync. So we're in sort of that limbo zone even today. Okay. Just to size the problem, the problem, uh, again, there's no precise number. But my own sort of estimates suggest that we have something like a 6,500, 7,000 crore problem. Okay. Um, Hole in the balance sheet, if you will. Okay. That results mostly from the NPA crisis, but also a little bit from requiring a little bit more capital for a new set of regulations called Basel III. Okay. So if you add those two up, let's call it 7,000 crores, a little bit more than $100 billion. Mm. I want
0: to clarify here that Narayan meant that the size of the hole was 650 to 700,000 crores, not 6,500 to 7,000 crores. And this translates to about $100 billion. For context, that's about three times the size of the government of
1: India's annual budget. Most of that, not all of it, but most of that is to public sector banks. Mm -hmm. Some of it is to a few of the public private sector banks that are in trouble at the same time. So that's a large sum of money Mm -hmm. and it requires significant and and given that it is largely focused on the public sector banking system, it requires a very heavy focus from uh, government to fix it. And uh, that fixing is not purely a financial problem. It is also a political problem. Mm -hmm. It is a labor problem. It is a election year problem. So you have sort of a, this little right. multiple wheels sort of spinning each in its own direction. And so far, while there have been modest attempts to uh, fix it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for instance, uh, banks buying uh, the, in a way, banks are financing themselves by buying the debt that's raised by government and put in back by equity. So that's like a circular uh, funding that, you know, works for a little while, but doesn't work for the longest time. There has been a long uh, uh, standing requirement to separate the good bank from the bad bank, Mm -hmm. as it were. And that requires significant political will, particularly given that a lot of these problems are in public sector banks. And so truly the solution will lie if, you can separate out these bad assets into a resolution process, and allow the good banks to function. Okay. Uh, recapitalizing the banks, you can try, mm-hmm. and some I think good banks, some of the better banks in the group need to be recapitalized. Okay, all of them need to be recapitalized, but it, some of the ba- better, bigger banks should be recapitalized. Mm-hmm. But the problem is then the moment they are recapitalized, there is a political and labor-based clamor to merge with a weak bank. And so it's in a way you're saying make the strong slightly stronger, but then make them weak immediately by merging with a small bank Mm -hmm. as sort of counterproductive. So truly, uh, I know some of you may recall that the U.S. after the financial crisis did a program called TARP, Mm -hmm. Um, Toxic assets uh, recovery
0: program, reconstruction program, reconstruction reconciliation program. program,
1: whatever. So, if effectively the 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 plan was simply to separate into good bank and bad bank, mm-hmm. and if you did that, and the government did do that, and put in money, and actually ended up making money, okay. So, you need that sort of uh, clean strike of the cleaver, so to speak, uh, in order to uh, to put this on a path to success. And then if you do that cleanly and strongly, Mm -hmm. then the public money that goes into supporting these things will actually make you money. And therefore, the political accountability becomes that much easier because the money you put in actually returns money to you eventually. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you take a loosey-goosey gradualist approach, which we have so far been following, Mm -hmm. then you've not done it because you don't have the political will, but by doing it in a half-baked manner, you will not get the returns, which then further compounds the political accountability. Right. <laughs> right. So we are a little in this warp where we haven't yet fully been able... I think, you know, politically speaking, this will have to wait till next year. Okay. Not going to happen before Not happening till 2019, just purely from the political calendar. Okay. Too many state elections this year and then the national election next year. So I suspect given the strong political uh, uh, implications that uh, this, the true resolution, but then we, you know, if we're lucky and and if, if the government of that day can summon the courage, then it should happen very swiftly after that, because in a way it's best to take the, the fall in the first year of a new administration. So, um, I'm hoping, therefore, that the second half of 2019 will produce strong, clean, fast uh, uh, setting in motion of the real resolution.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: But so far, I would say we've been paying lip service to the problem rather than actually doing too much about it.
0: So, does it make sense to split the NPA problem into a stock and a flow issue? Are we still signing on? Are banks still uh, giving out credit to uh, people who may not be uh, very creditworthy? Uh,
1: Or has the flow
0: problem been managed now? It's a stock issue.
1: Well, actually, we have, uh, in in not quite the way you say it, but we have both a stock and a flow problem. Mm -hmm. So we certainly have a stock problem. That's the one we've been discussing so far. But we have a flow problem because what little chance some of these banks had of potentially working their way out of the problem by on margin doing absolutely the right thing
2: mm-hmm. has
1: been stopped for some of them by diktat that says you're so badly off, you can't lend. Okay. So the, within the larger group of institutions that are in trouble, there's actually a subgroup that by regulation now cannot lend. Okay actually has to pare back. So, and what's the thing to do? The only thing they can pare back is the best loan. So not only cannot they lend, they cannot even retain the loans they have. They're actually asked to shrink their balance sheet. Because they've been asked to shrink their balance sheet, the easiest thing to sell is the good loan. Right. So it's a double whammy. You're not allowed flow on good new credit. And the stock of good old credit is actually reducing because you're left with an adverse selection of poor old credit. So you're actually in a way, at least for a few banks, you're making them fully bad banks, which is not easy thing to do. I think uh, people haven't thought through that carefully enough. Some banks will be 40, 50% bad. Okay. That is... Is unsustainable. I mean, a bank will go bust if it's ten percent bad. So fifty percent bad is 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 rotten. Right. <laughs> there's no way around it. There's no bailout possible. You just literally have to write it off. So I don't know whether there's people of him being uh, naive about it or, or or what's happening, but we are creating bad bank, good bank in a very odd way. Some banks are becoming fully bad. Okay. By this adverse selection and stock and flow that you were just mentioning. Right. Yeah.
0: Okay. So now is bank privatization is the fact that some of these banks are nationalized run by the government a part of the problem. And if so, is privatization the solution or at least part of the
1: solution? So I'll answer this two ways. So, so the real issue is accountability, Hmm. right? And accountability can come in the public sector and can come in the private sector. So, so, it's not that the inevitable answer to this is privatization, right? The, the best answer to this is create a system of accountability. Now, so that is the RBI having more
0: regulatory capacity, uh, more oversight.
1: The RBI having equivalent regulatory capacity as it has for private banks is even sufficient. Mm-hmm. That's number one. That's, that's one element. Second element is where many of these are listed entities so that uh, SEBI, which is the stock market regulator, should have equal power on public sector banks as they have on other institutions. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Third, at least from a listing point of view, obviously from a banking governance point of view, it belongs to RBI, but from a listing point of view, SEBI should have that same authority. Uh, Third, the board and executive management decisions should be independent and not have political interference. Now, of course, that's easier said and done if the person who is in charge is being appointed by government. So there right. are, it's a non-trivial issue. An excellent paper on this uh, regulatory framework for banks was written by a gentleman called P.J. Nayak some four or five years ago. A bit tragic that not a single element of that paper has been uh, uh, implemented to date. But it has excellent solutions about how you would create accountable uh, governance frameworks. So, so I think the, the answer is to either put in a layer in government that, uh, you know, for instance, an agency in government that has authority to shield from political interference mm-hmm. and then create institutions under that authority or stick all of these institutions in that authority or privatize or both. Okay. My guess is the answer will be both,
2: mm-hmm. that
1: India can and, and should actually have some public sector banking institutions, and they should be governed by a banking standards board, if you will, or a, some equivalent
2: mm-hmm.
1: that holds the equity share of the government in one single place, but protects the banks from political interference, and but yet maintains overall political accountability for or accountability to the people for their actions. So I think that's the way it should go. I think this wholesale notion of privatization, mm-hmm. and if you take you know, PNB, or if you take uh, the related case, uh, which was the Gitanjali Gems
2: mm-hmm.
1: case, which is still ongoing and open, there are a few public private sector banks involved, and in they haven't crowned themselves in glory. So uh, accountability is the answer, whether they are accountable in the public sector or private sector, Whatever it is, they need to be accountable. And and that's the both enforcement, regulation, um, pride, you know, things that are old-fashioned in some ways need to be reinstituted in the banking system because ultimately they're public trust institutions, whether they're private or public. And, and that's what I think we need to get back to.
0: Okay. So supposing we don't manage this problem well in the next uh, few years, how exactly will the consequences pan out? What does it mean? Does it mean that um, access to credit will become more difficult in the country or what what does it mean
1: well, it already has okay so i mean if you look at credit growth in the country it's been abysmal for the last two or three years right and the prospects for it continuing that way are there till the banking system is solved now on margin private sector banks are taking market share from public sector Mm-hmm. So some of that problem is mitigated, but not at the scale that you need it. Because public-private sector banks are much smaller overall, um, and in 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 flow in in stock terms, as you know, two thirds of the banking system is public sector and one third is private. On margin terms, maybe it's ninety ten today, mm-hmm. but even then, it's only slowly changes. It doesn't change uh, radically overnight. Um, so I think yeah, slow credit is is definitely one consequence. Okay. Also, a pause in innovation and ability to create new product, and just the banking system sort of lagging the economy
2: mm-hmm.
1: by three, four, five years creates all manner of catch-up issues that uh, that are not easy to tell at a moment, but will be are palpable. You know, every three, five years that you keep okay. moving forward. So, uh, as India's economy doubles and triples, we needed a banking system that was not four years behind, but six months ahead. Right. And, and we now have a four-year catch-up for at least two-thirds of the banking sector. That's not a good situation to be in. And the biggest impact is, is credit growth. And the biggest impact of credit growth obviously is, is uh, GDP directly. And the cost of GDP is that you delay prosperity by okay. one quarter, two quarter, five quarters. Right. And that has serious costs.
0: So apart from this, uh, it, if a bank fails, for example, it, it's also a huge cost to the exchequer, right? to bail uh, a bank out. So that's also something that can happen. Oh, theoretically can
1: happen. hasn't happened in India. Okay. So in our uh, managed system so far, even failed banks have been unfailed, if I can call it that way. Okay. So we don't know if some large scale bank uh, fails, how... The government, which technically is the owner, will actually uh, back their IOU mm-hmm. is not as unknown. And uh, for the first time after the PNB crisis, you're you're hearing that worry. Till till the PNB crisis,
2: mm-hmm.
1: there was this this cast iron confidence that the government stands behind the public sector system after the PNB, for the first time, you're beginning to see some chinks in that armor. Are, are they really as, uh will they be backed to the last day, to the final hour, so to speak, mm-hmm. or not? And frankly, maybe the government itself doesn't know. It may depend on the magnitude and speed of the problem. Right. So I think, you know, there's another reason for us to fix the NPA and that's that, right, which is, uh we haven't seen a, large-scale bank failure in India. And um, particularly in the public sector system, we don't know how that will actually play out. Okay. Smaller banks have not been allowed to fail in India.
0: Okay. So I have two questions and we'll sort of close with that. One is, does India having a large fiscal deficit compound this NPA problem? Is there an interplay there? And then I'll get to the second one.
1: Yeah, I mean, on margin, if India had a fiscal surplus, you could go to a fiscal deficit and use some of that money to to at least partially bail out the banks. So, yes, in that sense. Mm -hmm. But for a growing economy to have a fiscal deficit at the central level of 3% and of the total level at 5 or 6% is not inherently a big problem. So, the fiscal deficit by itself is not a problem. It's that when you have it at the same time as a banking crisis, you have one both of them being sort of concurrent problems, if you will. Now, the shameful thing as far as India's macroeconomic uh, situation is concerned is we have a revenue deficit
2: hmm.
1: or a primary deficit, if you want right. to think of it that way. And that is that even without counting interest on debt on a day-to-day basis, your uh, revenue uh, uh, falls short of your expenditure. I mean, that we're borrowing
0: is, to pay for salaries also.
1: Correct. So that's one element, but you're borrowing for expense. Right. Rather than each, for each investment. year. So you're not even making the revenue related to your expenditure of that year. That is a shameful uh, state to be in. And no government except very briefly in 2007, A seven.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: we have not been close to a revenue neutral revenue surplus situation for a long, long time. Right. And nobody has stated it as a specific objective. So, without getting too much into the f- uh, the fiscal accounts, I would say the revenue deficit is shameful. The fiscal deficit itself is okay now. Mm-hmm. But we don't have surplus cash lying around for us to fund $100 billion of a hole in the banking system. Right. And so, we have no choice but to sooner rather than later to break this into two problems. And uh, Okay.
0: And uh, the final
1: question... Uh, has the bankruptcy law helped conceptually absolutely and, and and in fact it could be a major help okay so in in design terms it is absolutely the right solution it's absolutely okay. one element of the right solution which is you are you know for if we go back to where i started this conversation you have three types of companies right the companies that were affected by a softness in demand
2: mm-hmm.
1: but not by malintent or mal prosecution right, Uh, mal-execution, if you want to think of it that way, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: are ripe for being restructured in a manner in which they can become viable again. And so absolutely, a bankruptcy process is a major element of the resolution of an NPA uh, crisis broadly and specifically this one. Exactly how it plays out, we are seeing in the newspapers every day today and now. And, And some of it is testing, which is good, And uh, I actually am quite hopeful Mm -hmm. that of the first 12 that went to the NCLT, which is the judicial system in charge of the uh, bankruptcy process, at least three or four will come out in a manner in which, uh, uh, you know, jobs are preserved, creditors get back some of their money, uh, etc. Equity shareholders lose most of the money. Most importantly, the original founder promoters are out of the company. Mm-hmm. I think that's very, very important, at least in the current Indian context. There's some controversy around that, but I am a strong believer that the old promoters should not be allowed to bid for their companies, okay. uh, which is the which is the current law.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But a lot of people are protesting it as we speak. So, okay.
0: thanks again, Narayan, for coming in. Thank you very much, Pawan. Thank you for staying with us till the end. If you have any questions for Narayan or any of us hosts. Write into podcast at thinkpragati.com and we'll answer your question in a future episode. Tune in to thinkpragati.com for more brain fodder as well as extra reading related to the Pragati Podcast episodes. You can subscribe to the Pragati Podcast on the IBM Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. We are there everywhere. The Pragati Podcast is an IVM production. And if you like our show, you can also check out their other shows, like the Rotomouth Podcast. Hosted by Sanjeev Joshi, the show looks at big automotive stories of the week. Listen in to keep track of new technologies, entertainment, policies, vehicles, and more to better understand the auto industry in India at large. New episodes out every Monday on IVMPodcast.com, the IVM Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. There she stands, a podcast addict. Outside the bank, having travelled several miles to get in with other poor souls like her, the journey, though daunting for this youngling, will have some comfort because she has downloaded her favourite podcast. You can see more of her species on ivmpodcasts.com your one-stop destination where you can check out the coolest Indian podcasts. Happy listening.